Good morning. Good morning. Let me look at you. The lights are in my eyes a little. And maybe a, a, I'm a little misty. Them songs were pretty good. So, um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brad. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And uh, I'm going to be ministering the word to you. But before we do that, children, there you go. <laughs> Your teachers are waiting for you. Parting words of wisdom. Lord, bless our children as they go down and are exposed to your word this morning. Okay. Uh, as I was putting together this word, I was thinking about how, how well I could dovetail some stories from my family into this, but I'm not going to do it. So I'm just saying that. that I'm, I'm actually making a declaration of great restraint in that. So... So those of you that know me, you get that. Um, okay, uh, first let's uh, let's open with prayer, and then I'll I'll make a little introductory statement. But it's we must depend upon the grace of God, and so let's pray. Father, you are indeed a good, good Father. All of your ways are kind. All of your ways, Lord, draw us toward you and toward your love and toward your power. Our lives, Lord, are made an adventure when we put our lives in your hand and let you guide us through. You make of us things that we can't even imagine. You lead us into acts that surprise us constantly. It is a delight to be called by your name. And so, Father, this morning, as I talk about these heroes of old, these ordinary people that you laid your hand upon, I pray that your grace will um, just explode with revelation in our hearts, Lord, as we look at your magnificent power and your ways in Jesus' name. Uh, so, we've been working through a series about the heroes of faith that are cited in Hebrews 11. And I'm going to read a little piece of that in a minute here. But last week, Adam spoke about Jacob and Joseph. A key point that Adam brought forth was the paradigm shift that occurred as they met with God through their respective life journeys. Whereas the, uh, Jacob and Joseph, they began at the place of expecting God to participate in their lives, they shifted to participating in his plan. And Adam did a great job of drawing that out. To say it another way, they shifted from self-centered self to God-centered through participation with God. Uh, they accomplished amazing acts of faith that brought glory to the Lord. And that's what the Hebrews um, chapter 11 is about. It shows how that once, once they stepped into this place with the Lord and put their lives in his hands fully, fully devoted to him, he led them into these amazing acts of faith that bring glory to his name and that we can now um, stand uh, as the benefactors of that because we have these great examples. And uh, I kind of feel a little sad. I love the Old Testament and I love the Old Testament stories. I'm constantly surprised as I study and, and delve into the Old Testament stories. I'm constantly surprised at the richness that's there. And, and that kind of grieves me a little bit because sometimes I think we present these stories a little thinly you know, in our, um, you know, in our modern day, and you know, on this side of the cross too, 
you know, we, we can tend in American evangelicalism or Protestantism, we can tend to, uh, and rightly so, put all of our emphasis on the cross. We should do that. But I think what happens is we tend to neglect those that have gone before, and there's a tremendous amount of richness there. And so uh, I find it really exciting to study the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to do so, to read and, and to plow into those Old Testament stories and read them with fresh eyes every time. You'll be, you'll be surprised as I am too. So um, Moses and Joshua, I'm going to talk to you about today. So now we move on uh, to our next two yahoos. I didn't know how to spell that. It's in my notes. It's kind of weird. I wish I'd put it up there. We could have an uh, English lesson and you could teach me how to spell. Uh, they find themselves in the hand of God. Consequently, they end up doing some pretty awesome faith acts, um, Moses and Joshua. Uh, to get started, let's read a little bit from Hebrews 11. Um, if we could put that up, yeah. Hebrews 11, 23 through 30 is all I'm going to read this morning. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eye on, eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. <laughs> and that is quite something. Uh, I'm going to be moving through, uh, for those of you that have scriptures and like to follow along, I'm going to be moving through chapter 2 of Exodus. And <clears throat> I'm going to kind of dance down through the story because time doesn't allow for us to open up everything that's there. I'm just going to draw out some things for you. And so, looking at Moses and Joshua, um, the amount of literature that we have around these two is, is huge. It's the first, fully the, the first six books of the Bible, uh, what's called the Torah, and then in the, and Joshua rests in the writings. But uh, Joshua was probably the author of parts of Joshua, but Moses is usually recognized as the author of the Torah, which is the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there is an incredible amount of literature and a, number, a great number of acts that Moses does, and, uh, and Joshua as well. And so I'm just going to pull out a little bit and tease out one thing that's in keeping with the stuff that Adam said to you last week. Um, this morning, <clears throat> I'd like to attempt to open insights in their life development, uh, how, they, how they were developed. Um, so it's going to be kind of the, we're looking at the story, but I want to look at the events as developing events, and I want you to hold that in your mind. 
Um, my hope is that by approaching the story this way, the Holy Spirit will bless us with wisdom about his ways and find courage to participate. It will encourage you to participate in God's plan the way these heroes did. Let me give you a quick review or overview of Moses' life up to the burning bush experience. So the circumstances of his birth are such as this. It's, as we read in Hebrews, there was an edict that was put out by the Pharaoh because the Israelites were multiplying in the land, which is exactly what God commanded them to do in the beginning. Go into the land, multiply, fill it, and rule it. And so they were actually in God's will. They were multiplying like crazy. And uh, the king says, well, I got to do some population control because I'm, we're threatened. Pretty soon these, these Israelites will take over the whole land. They're, they're infesting us. <laughs> you know? And that's kind of the way he looked at it. That's the language. They, you know, they were slave labor force. Uh, by this time. Hundreds of years they'd been down in the land. Uh, they came down during a time of a famine under Joseph and they had been there for uh, about 400, 410 years, maybe something like that. And so you can imagine, that's almost from when people landed in Jamestown till now, you know, the whole history of America <laughs> you know, has kind of happened in this time frame. And they're, they're out, you know, making bricks and building cities is what they're doing. And so anyway, uh, Pharaoh says, kill all the firstborn males. And so um, they start throwing them in the river and killing these babies, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I mean, man, there's, it's going to be hard for me to stay on track here because everything just is like foreshadowing everything else. And so it's just like amazing. So anyway, they're going to throw these babies in the Nile. But Moses' mother, who's not named in Exodus chapter 2, uh, neither, is, neither is his sister. They have no names there. And that's a literary device um, that... Uh, that they're using to bring forth something that's important. So anyway, here's his mother, sees that the baby is special, sees that the baby is good. That's what the Hebrew actually says. She looked at the child and sees that he's good. Some translations say beautiful. Uh, you know, ours today, it says, uh, she saw that he was special. Well, the thing is, is what the scriptures or what that Hebrew phrase is trying to communicate to you is the faith of this woman, this mother of Moses, that it is good that the child is born. This is what God, it's an act of faith that she does. And she sees this is something good that God has done. And so she attempts, so she defies Pharaoh's edict. That's why her faith is mentioned in here, even in chapter 11 of Hebrews as well, because that's a mighty act of faith. She has seen that, no, this is a good thing. God told us to multiply. And that's what she's actually doing. She's acting out of faith. And so what she does is she makes a little, it's, it's not a basket, it's an ark. And she puts him in this ark. That, there's only two places the word's used. It's not a basket. It's, it's actually an ark. And it's put together. It's this thing that she puts together, this little basket, basically. It's a small little ark. And lines it with bitumen and tar. You just can't miss it. it she's pointing back to this, to this salvation thing of Noah. You know, the, at least that's what the literature is trying to get you to do. It's like we've been using this modern word lately, hyperlinks. I love computer stuff, but when, you know, the way things are hyperlinked, and the scriptures are very much that way. There's all these patterns in there, and everything is echoing back, and it's trying to connect all of it together. That's, a, that's what they're trying to do. So him being put in this little 
tub and put together with tar and pitch is a tremendous act of faith. But this is his, this is his birth story. And then he's put down among the reeds. And so when Pharaoh's daughter comes along, you know, here's this little baby floating along in the reeds and got sister who is unnamed. She's standing off to the side and speaks to Pharaoh's daughter. And then Pharaoh, it tells us in Acts chapter 7, for three months was given back to his mother and she nursed him. And then Pharaoh's daughter brought him out. But when she, when she brought him out of the river, Pharaoh's daughter, this is, this is amazing too. Now remember, I'm talking about Moses and his formation his, as a person. So hold that always while I'm talking here. And so she draws Pharaoh's daughter, comes to the bank of the river, and she draws, draws him out. She says, his name shall be Moses, Moshe. And so, which, is, which means I've drawn him out. If ever there was anything more prophetic, we're going to see that Moses' entire life is centered around this phrase, draws out. His name actually, or drawn out. And that's what we're going to see. So in the very naming, Pharaoh's daughter rises up as a hero too. So now we have all of these unlikely people that are facilitating this story. We have Egyptian midwives. We have an unnamed mother. We have a sister. We have Pharaoh's daughter who defies her father by drawing out. She goes, it's the child's a Hebrew child. She knows that the, the, her father's edict is to let that baby die. She should have, if she was an obedient daughter, she would have let the baby drown or killed it. You know, had it killed. She didn't do that. She, it's an act of defiance of the edict. And then she speaks almost, it, the, the, the way the language is, is that is she, she makes a command to Miriam, go. And also she says, uh, I'll name him Moses because I'm drawing him out. And, it, and it, the, whole, the whole phraseology is, is prophetic. So now what we have, remember I was talking about hyperlinks. So now what we have is we have this little baby put in a little ark, put in the river, floating among the reeds, and he's drawn out. And Pharaoh's daughter is pointing ahead to what Moses is going to do. He's going to bring Israel through the Sea of Reeds. He's going to draw Israel out into the wilderness. So Moses becomes this agent of drawing out God's people. So he fulfills his name. All of that's in that little story. And that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to move through it kind of quickly so you can get this. And he would have understood this, you know, as he grew up and his stories were told. So Moses is brought up in the court of Pharaoh uh, as such. So we have this Hebrew baby that put into the system and um, he has special privileges. He's away from the slave mentality, but he's brought into the house of privilege. And he received training in many things. Religion, he would have received um, really hands-on and, 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 you know, tutor. He's a prince. And so he would have received uh, teaching on religion, literature, all of the literature, uh, he would have understood construction practices, how to build things, how to, you know, especially like the engineering part and the mathematics. He would have understood that. He would have been exposed to warfare and how to do warfare. And uh, he would have also, uh, 
He would have also been brought into the place of being exposed to leadership and administrations. So here's Moses. All this stuff is laid in him through his life. All of this stuff is put in there. The problem is Moses is already starting to develop something that I'm hoping to draw out a little bit is that is he a Hebrew or is he Egyptian? You know? Now I've got a I've got a brother that was adopted out uh, of our family. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I didn't meet him until he was about forty, and it's he's a full brother, same mom and dad. And he was because of circumstances he was he was adopted at his birth, adopted out at his birth, and then my parents, my birth parents, had another child after him, and he was been the fourth child their fourth child and so at 40 he had a wonderful life he had really good adoptive parents far you know as far as being safe and and so on you know a, a superior life to what maybe my brothers and I did because we were dispersed out all over the place and everything but when my brother came into discovering and, and investigating his roots one of the things that puzzled me was he was really struggling with who he was. Who am I? I mean, that effect of that. It was the first time I ever really was, was to be close to somebody and to watch that and trying to wrestle with and, and feeling empathy for him. I was trying to comfort him, but the depth of that sense of disorientation really played on him. And man, I mean, this guy has skills. I mean, he's, he's an amazing man but he has this conflicted thing that goes on because he's not sure who he is, you know? And so that's a, kind of a, a, an idea to just to kind of help you see something that's beginning to develop in Moses. And so anyway, uh, he comes out. Uh, it says when he's 40 years old, in Acts chapter 7, I think it says, he, when Moses is 40 years old, he comes out to... Um, he goes out to the work area where the Hebrews are, and he has, I think, this sense of, he has, he has stuff. Like I told you, he has stuff. He thinks he can be helpful. And so what he does is he goes out and he sees an Egyptian that is oppressing one of his brothers, and he wants to rescue him. So it shows us something about Moses. He wants to rescue him. So he goes over and he, and he strikes the Egyptian, and, um, and then he buries him in the sand. He's, he thinks that he's acting, he's doing good. He thinks he's done a right thing, and maybe he is. I don't know. The jury's out, you know. But he's, he strikes down this Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then the next day he comes out, and the Hebrews, there's two Hebrews fighting with each other, and so he tries to be reconciliatory. And they said, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to kill us like you did you know, the, apparently the aggressive Hebrew, you know, says to him, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you did that Egyptian and uh, bury me in the sand too? You know, who do you think you are? You think you're a ruler over us? Man, all of a sudden, here's Moses. He's just like wondering, man, how did such a good intention turn into such a bad thing? And, you know, because now, because he's killed an Egyptian, he's under the laws of the land and Pharaoh's going to seek his life. And so Moses thinks, you know, nice time for a vacation. <laughs> Out he goes. And so he goes out to Midian. Midian is a country that lies to the, to the east of Mount Sinai. And it's, it's kind of down, 
it's south of what we would know as Israel now. It was kind of south and it was kind of a deserty, dry area, and that's where Midian was. And so he flees out across uh, the Sinai Peninsula, past Mount Sinai, and over to Midian, and Moses ends up at a well. And this well scene is really important because if you go back and you see these patterns, this, the, the well scene is what they call a type scene um, in the scripture. It's meant to communicate something. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but Moses going to a well and meeting these women and all of the events that happened there is really important because Isaac was, you know, his bride came from a well. Is that me or is, is it something popping and cracking or? Anyway, he's at a well, and oh yeah, okay, in the the patriarchs, if you go back and you look at Isaac, you look at uh, Jacob, you you look at several of these, uh, so this this well scene, this well scene is, is really important in the formation of, and it gives credence to what I'm trying to say, that Moses is a little confused. And so if you look at all these different places where the patriarchs get their wives, they're at these well scenes. So it's a type scene. It's a pattern. And there's a certain scholar, his name is Michael Manning, I think, and he identified 12 different steps that happen at these well scenes. And so in Hebrew literature, one of their devices is that if you take this list of 12 items that happen, if there are things that are missing... If there's something on that list that's missing from the story, it's meant to communicate something powerful in the story. And so the thing that's missing in Moses' well scene is that he fails to identify himself. Normally, the, the person, the man that would go there and would be there, he would identify who he is. But Moses doesn't do that. And so the daughters say, they go to their dad and they say, Dad, there's this Egyptian at the well. And so they identify him. But Moses doesn't identify himself. He never does. And so it brings some credence to what I'm trying to say this morning. Because he ends up at this well scene. He doesn't know who he is. So he's now 40 years old. And he marries Zipporah. And there's a lot we could say about that, but we're not going to. But births a son named Gershom. Now Moses' son Gershom means a sojourner there or a foreigner there. I'm a foreigner in a foreign land, basically is what Gershom means. When he names his son, Moses is making a declaration of how he feels about who he is. Okay, how are we? If I don't pop my nose on it, we'll be beautiful. Those of you guys on the internet, sorry about this. So, so anyway, uh, when Moses names his son Gershom, we have this identifying mark in, in Moses. Moses doesn't know who he is. So we find Moses at 80 years of age, and he's out. He's taken his sheep and flocks. He's been, with, he's been in the house of Jethro. Now Jethro is a priest. And those daughters, they were raised in a very religious-serving uh, family, if you will. You know, Jethro was a priest. He was a wise man and a sage that helped people um, live well, kind of like a pastor now, be sort of similar to that. And uh, so anyway, Moses takes his sheep and his goats. I'm, I'd like to think they were probably more goats because of where he took them. Uh, he took them out to Sinai. He's far to the west. He's gone kind of around a body of water, and he's, he's a long ways. He's, it's like 
uh, for us, those of you that are familiar with agriculture and stuff, it's in the old days when they used to take the sheep up to the high places, you know, to find pasture and stuff. It's kind of like a scene like that. So here's Moses now. He's 80 years old now. And he's got his stick, and he's got his goats, and he's got his story, and he's got all of this stuff that was put in him, <laughs> you know, all of this education and stuff, and he's out in a dry place with goats. What are goats like, Fred? <laughs> they make pretty good company, but I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> you know? So anyway, this is, where, this is where Moses is. He's out with the goats. He's a man who's struggling with identity issues. He's in a state of wondering who he really is, even at this age, after all these years. And he's struck, he is stuck living in a somewhat disordered inner, inner life. It's not a bad life. It's a rather peaceful life, but it's not a very effective life. You know, not for what's in there. And so, he has all the stuff he needs. He's just not confident as a result. And the Lord is about, to help, is about to help him out. And we'll see that Yahweh draws him out. He draws Moses' true identity out by bringing him into a participatory excuse me, relationship. And so we have this burning bush encounter. Now, some scholars think that the burning bush is a picture. It was a symbolic picture of the state of Israel, that they're in the fires of affliction and the voice of the Lord is speaking out from them. Yeah, that'll work. It works for me. And so here's Moses. He's looking at him. Oh, what a strange thing. I shall pull aside and see what's going on there. And the Lord encounters him and says, Moses, get your sandals off your feet. You're on holy ground. And, and the Lord speaks to him. And so now, at 80 years of age, he hasn't even begun ministry yet. You've got to think on that. Oh, geez. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get to thinking we're on the downside of life. But we have no idea what the Holy Spirit can do with us when he leads us into to a, a single act of obedience. And so we have, uh, we have this encounter... And in Exodus 2, verse 23, let me read a little bit. Uh, beginning at verse 23 through 3, 6. Years passed and the king of Egypt had died, but the Israelites continued to groan under the, under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't the bush burning up? I must go see it. Then the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look. God called to him from the middle of the bush saying, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And I want to draw something out. It is a singular word, 
father. It's not, I am the God of your fathers. Yahweh speaks to Moses and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God, with one word spoken into Moses' spirit, he understood who he was. That's what the scripture is telling us there. Just like that. I don't know what your life has been like, but I started to, I started to discover who I was when the Lord laid his hands upon me because I felt a lot like this. And so there was Moses. And so in that singular word, God speaks right into Moses' confusion. He says, I am the God of your father. So... Let me just read a little bit of this a little bit farther down here. Um, I'll begin with verse 7 and I'll just read a little bit. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where, a land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached up to me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now, go... And the language in the word is the same as when the Pharaoh's daughter said to Miriam, go, <laughs> take the, and take the child to the mother. And so uh, Moses hears it. It's a very emphatic. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people of Israel out of Egypt. And then Exodus... Um, and we're already into Exodus 9, th uh, three, 9 through 15. If we could put that up, because this is where God, uh, Moses begins to dialogue with the Lord. Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who, that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, God of your ancestors has sent me, they will ask, what is his name? And what should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am, or I will be whoever I will be. That's what, that, that's what the name means. He goes, uh, and God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, now he uses his full name, this is God's personal name, our God's personal name is Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So in God's first encounter with Moses, in that statement, of I am who I am, or I am who I will be, he does not answer the question. It's a kind of like a shell thing. It's empty. It, it has a, a voice of drawing Moses in. It, it has, you know, he goes, I am whoever I will be. How it would have affected Moses is, is like this. I'm going to show you who I am. 
You're going to have to wait and see. Now, this is the beauty of faith. You know, we get an idea of who we think God is. I don't know if anybody, you could wave your hand. I had an idea of who I thought Jesus was. I had an idea of who I thought God was. But day by day as I walk with him, I'm learning more and more and more. He's drawing me out. Here's what I want you to get. As Moses is drawn into this relational invitation, he is told he will come to know Yahweh through participating in his mighty acts of power and deliverance. Secondly, as a result, Moses will literally walk, out, walk into his true identity, who he is and what his life means. His former conflicted identity issues will resolve. Moses will be transformed into a powerful and integrated man, a man who lives by faith and by the word of God daily. Moses is brought into a very strict experience with God. God is uncompromising with him because of the weight of the ministry, but Moses is prepared. All of his time, his birth stories, his, his education, all of it has made him, he has the stuff. It just needs to be ordered. It just needs to be brought out. It just needs to be brought into the experience of meeting the needs of the Israelites, of which Moses has absolutely no power to accomplish whatsoever, but God is with him. And God is with us. The discovery of who we are and what we mean lies in entering into the work of God. I don't know if you've gotten that, but you get a lot of pressure here to enter into the mission of God. It's, it's like we're constantly saying the mission, the mission, the mission, the Great Commission. It's our value. We want you to walk in the power of the Spirit in signs and wonders. You know, this is what is in our heart. It's not, it's not like we're trying to develop some theological stand that we can just kind of adhere to and then we get a view and participate in that. No, what we're trying to do is draw us into this place of vital engagement with the Holy Spirit on a day by day. We want that to come forward as the most powerful thing in your life. This, for you to enter into this place where you say, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord. And he draws, he begins to draw you out and bring you into who you are, who you really are. And I'll tell you, we do these timeline things in here in our discipleship stuff that's really important. It's easy to dismiss that stuff like it doesn't matter, but what it does is it presents you to the idea of how you were formed. And I use kind of strong language sometimes that I think that God wants us to overcome. He wants us to engage these difficulties of our life. He wants us to engage these things in our life, and he wants us to learn to reach out to him and allow him to come in his power and transform those things so that we can be a testimony, so that the, safe, the salvation of the world is dependent upon this. Now, God's not got a sweat on his brow. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows every trauma in your life. He knows every shortcoming, every difficult thing. You think Moses didn't feel disappointment? I'm a prince, and I'm out here with goats. And all I got is a stick. This is not a scepter. I don't care what your anguish is. Jesus is the answer. <laughs> it's the truth. 
and to, and to press into these things and to let God tell you who you are. My daughter was in a conflict once at school and this school principal was trying to tell her who she was and I got rather angry. I said, he doesn't get to do that. I get to tell you who you are. Hear me, fathers. When you press in to finding out who you are, you will say things to your kids that will prepare them for, I mean, there's, oh, I, gotta, I just got to, no time. He has something to pass on now, Moses does. And even now today, stop and think about it, even now today I'm standing here telling you about a guy that put his life in the hand of Almighty Yahweh thousands of years ago. And we're being affected today. In fact, the whole New Testament, the whole New Testament is meaningless without, this, without these experiences written down. Jesus, Jesus draws, draws out all of this stuff. And it's all based in this Old Testament. All of these stories are telling us who our God is. And we see him even more perfectly when we look to the cross and we see Jesus. The hidden raw material is embedded in his soul during years of preparation. It's suddenly brought out and, he's ordered, and now he's being ordered and usable. His inner world is chaotic, but it is into the chaos that God speaks his voice and draws order out. He brings order to our confusion, to our disillusionment. We should never be afraid of those things. We should just put our hand in the hand of God and say, it's dark here, Father, where am I? And let him bring that light, and he will every time. He is faithful and true, and he is good, good, good. Now into Joshua real quick so that I can close this up. Joshua enters the story as a young man who serves as Moses' assistant. As such, he cannot help but be affected as he observes Moses. He is walking with Moses day by day. He's a young man, and he's in, the, in his places. He's Moses' assistant. He becomes a general, and Moses is able to impart to him what he knows about warfare. And Joshua rises up, and he's amazing. Let's just jump forward to the outcome of it. So what I'm trying to say is that any man or woman that puts their life as fully and dedicates themselves at that level, and God's spirit is in there, you have no idea the impact you're doing with those around you. I get times and seasons with people where I've been able to mentor them a little bit, and I have no greater joy. I see now, you know, well-founded families, middle-aged, that were 20-year-old kids when I met them. And what little bit that God, whatever, little bit of grace God gave me to impart to them, has, he has, he is, I mean, I could, I could just tell you lots of stories about that. And this is what's happening. There's this transgenerational nature of ministry. God expects one generation to tell the next about his mighty, mighty deeds and mighty power. And Joshua is sitting there, and he's, one thing you'll get if you read Joshua, he is intent. He is hungry. He clings to Moses. There's one story in, I think it's Exodus 33, 11. And, uh, uh, but anyway, it says when Moses was at the meeting, the, the tent of meeting with um, Moses, and Moses left to go back out, but Joshua stayed there. Joshua would not move away. He was hungry. He was hungry for God. He was hungry for those things. And he caught that fire by being around Moses and seeing what Moses was doing. 
And so we have this earnestness and we have this hunger and the loyalty exhibits. Man, he is one that's worth investing in. And Moses does. He passes everything on to him. And God eventually tells Joshua, I'm going to put some of Moses' spirit on you and you're going to lead the people. They come to this place of, Jer of Jericho as they enter the land. Joshua is now commissioned to take them in the power of the spirit into the land. They come to Jericho and the story of Jericho is incredible because it's like, okay, some walls fell down. You know, we tell it in the Bible school. But the walls represent something. The walls represent the false security and sense, the sense of uh, safety that we have as we isolate ourselves in cities. That's what they do. They build cities, they build walls, and what they do is they build those walls, and, and, they, and the people trust it. They trust the structure. And so here comes Moses. I mean, here comes Joshua, and God tells him, yeah, just walk around the city and then lift up a shout. <laughs> and so they, can you imagine? And I mean, up on the wall, the Bible tells us, up on the wall is all the inhabitants. You know, you can't get us. We're too strong. Our wall's protecting us. And Joshua just marches around in silence. Seven times, the Lord said, do it. Seven times. Walk around seven times. Joshua turns around. They blow some trumpets and they lift up a shout and Walls fell right down. And they just walked in and pillaged the place. That's some pretty good faith. And that's what we're looking at here. It was a simple thing. But what I wanted, what I wanted to get is that each generation makes it easier for the next if we're really walking in the light. Men of God and women of God, I'm telling you, be hungry for this stuff. Joshua goes to conquer and establish the people in their new possession. The Lord has made a way possible for us all to enter the journey with himself through the cross. We don't need walls. We have a cross. And we have a holy God, a holy spirit. He is our preserver. He is our protector. He is our security. This is the things of the way of the world. You can tell. Are you spending all of your time building your own security of self-preservation, self-sufficiency? This is one of the sad things. I'm just going to, this is a rebuke. This drives me nuts. Oh, us Christians, we're so noble, man. We love to give, give, give. But when it comes time for help, 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 we're not so good. That's pride. That's, you know what that is? That's the problem. You got walls. Sorry. I got them. You got them. I'm not excluding myself, but it drives me crazy. And a lot of my, a lot of my discipleship has been coming to that place of <laughs> letting go of, because it's a threatening world we live in. I get it. It's difficult. And I need to close this. And that's what I'm trying to say, is that we have this strong sense, and it's in our pride, of trying to preserve ourselves and build our security and build our wall around our families and different things like that. But there's something that's better and more powerful. And progressively, as we put our hand in the hand of the Lord, he will lead us into the place where we will see his deliverance and security at a much higher level. I am not freaked out when I read the news. I am not unsettled when conflict rises up in the middle of us. I don't like it, but I am not threatened by it anymore. Not like I used to be. I think that's our inheritance. I think that's the power of the cross. And that's what maturity is about. And so I need to stop now.
So this morning, as the worship team comes and the prayer team comes, if something has nudged you and you would like prayer, this is a good time to open the gates. Come and get some prayer. I don't know what your issues are, what your needs are, but the Holy Spirit does. And so I just want to encourage you to come. I'll stand down here and pray with you. I can't hardly hear a thing, but I'll do it anyway. And uh, come down here, and we're just going to pray for you as the, t- as the worship team leads us. And uh, let me with Jesus.